Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Alongside me, of course, is rescuer of dogs, friend of Ulipo, taker of holidays, you on holiday next week, is it? Steve? I am, but yeah. I did say. It's funny because I'm not. No, are you going on holiday this summer? Uh, no, I don't think I am. You actually. hear? What, are you undertaking now yeah. to appear on every podcast from now until autumn? No, that doesn't. That's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> that is not an undertaking. Um, how's Alf been in the heat? Well, I have good news um, regarding Alf. Actually, we took him to London. Oh dear! At the weekend, we had to because it's my brother-in-law's fortieth birthday, and we couldn't you miss couldn't, it. You couldn't leave and him. also. Phil, my brother-in-law, adores Alf almost as much as I do. One of the great friendships. Uh, a really great friendship. Yeah. Uh, because they had to overcome some serious obstacles because Phil is a man and Alf not so good man. with the men. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we, we brought him to Finsbury I Park. I the same, actually. <laughs> Bearded men in particular, he's not that yeah, into. I know exactly what he means. Um, but yeah, so we had to take him to London and we had not remembered that it was Pride Weekend. Okay. And also we had to go to Finsbury Park and Wireless Festival was on. Oh. So it was insane. It was madness. And Alf was so scared, but he overcome, He overcame his oh. fear. Alfonso the Noble and Brave, oh, true, to, true to his name, uh, uh, and he overcame. And he ex- exhibited no concerning... I wouldn't say that. ...examples of homophobia? <laughs> no, 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 not that I noticed. Oh, good. An enlightened dog. (laughs) Very enlightened. Oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, hurrah. Maybe, should you not get him a little friend? Uh, Oh, God, no. He's so big, there's no room for any other dogs in our home. Okay, well, that's good. (laughs) I think we can all rest happily that Alf is doing well. Um, Let's talk about the TLS. Here's your weekly (laughs) encouragement. Yeah, exactly. To encourage (laughs) to subscribe to us. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. That's podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod19. That's the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod19. And you'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. Coming up this week, it's the centenary of the birth of Iris Murdoch, that novelist and philosopher who dominated the literary pages in the final decades of the 20th century. Where do we stand on her now? We have our literary editor, Michael the Dr. Keynes, on hand to steer us through our Murdoch special, alongside Francis Wilson, the great biographer and critic. Plus, 
This was the week that the US women's football team won the World Cup. So we thought we'd better canvass the opinion of another American athlete, the roller derby queen of academia, Devaney Loza, who rejoices in the name of Stone Cold Jane Austen. She'll be in the studio. I might even ask her what a roller derby is. It's folly, really, to await an anniversary before taking time to examine the work of a great artist, and yet we all do it anyway. Iris Murdoch was born this week a hundred years ago, giving us, as Peter Conradi puts it in the TLS, an appropriate moment to ask about her own lasting influence. It's a considerable one, as our pages testify. Conradi quotes Margaret Drabble's praise that there is a magic about her observations that lights up the mundane world, alongside John Updike's recognition of her avid intellectual appetite. We might pause, though, and reframe a question we asked last week about Updike himself. Are the kids reading Iris Murdoch now? To which the answer may not be an unequivocal yes. When writers develop a critical industry around them as Murdoch has, it may be a sign that their contemporary relevance is starting to wane. We've asked a bunch of literary folk what they think. I'll read a couple out here. Lindsay Duguid, the former fiction editor of the TLS, has got this brilliant kind of dismissal of Murdoch. She read her as a teenager in order to learn about life from a worldly sixth form mistress guiding her eager, innocent pupils towards a higher future. But then she notes, her old orange penguins are now faded and battered at the back of the bookshelf. To Jonathan Gibbs, Murdoch remains a conundrum, even on the question of her own relevance. Could anyone write novels like those now? Could a male novelist, would they get away with it? Sophie Ratcliffe notes that she was called pretentious, a term often levelled at thinking women. But she remains grateful to Iris Murdoch for making me think. And then finally, the last word maybe goes to Ian Wilson, who says this, I can scarcely believe my luck that I knew this visitant from Mount Olympus as a friend. For those of us who didn't know her personally, what should we make of her now? Michael Keynes is here to tell us, as is the lovely Frances Wilson, who will be spending the summer like me reading thousands of pages of non-fiction <laughs> as we're both judges of the Bailey Gifford Prize. Michael, I know you love prizes. I love prizes. <laughs> and we may not love prizes after we spent the summer reading all those books, Frances. <laughs> but we're going to give it a go. We're not talking about that now. We're going to talk about Iris Murdoch. There's not a book about Iris Murdoch in our list, is there? Are no. We? No, or is there? Maybe we should leave that as a surprise. First question then for you both. Where is Murdoch in the Pantheon? Where does she stand? Who wants to go first? Francis, where would you where would you put Iris Murdoch's reputation now? I think that Iris Murdoch fails to interest younger readers because of her promiscuity. I think the new generation of puritanical readers cannot bear the sexual complications. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And how sexual a novelist is she? I mean, for oh, it's all it's all sex. <laughs> it's all se- sexual tangles and sexual entanglements and sexual chaos. And which is why I loved her as I was reading a very. I mean, my reading of Iris Murdoch ties in with Lindsay Duguid's. I read her to understand what being an adult was about. So I read her as a rite of passage when I was leaving university and coming to London. I thought oh, this is what being an adult's about. It's very, very, very complicated sexual relations. And everyone falling in love with everyone else at the same time and philosophising about it and talking about it and going inside each other's heads. And I think now um, that's, that's just no longer palatable. And really, I read to a couple of people, including Patrick Gale in the paper, he talks about how she was kind of good at testifying to gay experience, that mm. she put it all on the same level 
as heterosexual experience, which was quite rare for the time she was writing. Is, is, do you think that's an audience for her, Michael? The, I think that's true. I think there's um, a, a, there's something else that comes out in, in Peter J. Conradi's contribution to this issue about her being ahead of her time in terms of um, simple things to us, technical things we might take for granted. Like, there's, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I don't think I even noticed this when I read it, but that there's an answering machine in a book that she started writing well before they became commercially available. What a bizarre thing to come up with. And but it I plays a really important role. It's a really role. important answering <laughs> machine, exactly. A vital answering machine. What a brilliant thing to come up with, just as in a kind of farcical way. But I think the, the fact that she's open to that and that not only um, Peter Conradi but Alan Hollinghurst and Patrick Gale noticed that is part and parcel of her unremitting focus on ideas about love, about eros and agape. Those are the two things, her, yeah. her sort of phrases about this. And it's sort of her open-mindedness to that. So it's, and it's interesting that Peter Conradi recalls in this um, issue of the TLS that he asked her to help out, to contribute um, to a gay lib magazine in the 1970s and she was ambivalent about it because mm. she thought you shouldn't create a kind of secret society was I think her phrase and, but she wanted to support him obviously and that's kind of a trend that's kind of an issue now that people still debate you know this is last week was pride as Theo was saying and that debate still goes on at how much uh, should you be celebrating all equality and be inclusiveness and how much is it counterproductive to, to separate? And, and that's true of queer literature now. That that debate still goes on, I think. There's a really nice line in um, in John Updike's appreciation of Murdoch um, when he says, um, he's talking about, about what her novels did for him and uh, he says, it revealed that anyone could love anybody and frequently did. This news that we tend to love, that love is ambient and uncontrollable and comically cruelly protean, never grew stale for her. But it's this idea of we tend to love that it's sort of, that's the thing <laughs> that makes the world go round uh, in her novels, I suppose, that it's really quite, it seems quite irresistible, really. Yes. Is that not modern, though, Francis? Do you think that's not modern? I don't think I even understand now what Iris Murdoch means by love. At the time, I thought I understood. And I thought it's something I haven't ever experienced, but I must love in a Murdochian way. And now when I read Iris Murdoch, I think, God, what? I mean, it's this belief in love, but what? Is it a good feeling or good goodwill or something? But then they're all terrible to each other. (laughs) (laughs) So she has this, yeah, she equates love with goodness, but they all behave just about as badly (laughs) as you possibly could. And that's why the books are thrilling. If they were all good all the time, you Mm. wouldn't read them. What sort of novels are they? If we'd have to try and classify them, someone who has never, I mean, I'm quite conscious that there's probably people listening to this who've read everything by Iris Merck. There's probably people who've never read anything at all. And what type of... I mean, she's kind of... Liter- I think literary fiction... It's not really comic very seldom, is it? I mean, I, I couldn't quite... I think it's comic. I think it's comic philosophy. And I also think that if you've read one, you've read them all. There's very few people who have just read one Iris Murdoch. You get addicted because it's a very addictive universe. Kay McLaughlin McLaughlin in in the symposium says that she read all 26 and she's looking forward (laughs) to starting again. (laughs) And they all blend into one, rather, don't they? I was thinking it was um, when I was looking back in preparation for talking to you today about Iris Murdoch about my favourite novels and it was really hard to distinguish one from the other and it was but in a good way but it's also really hard to think of any standout characters isn't it there's no Maggie Verva or Jean Brodie yeah this is a criticism actually that one of um, one of the pieces makes about one of the experts in the field mistakes one character for another presumably even for her they just blend together yet one distinction that to me is 
I think might mean something is okay. They, I think comedy obviously very important. Lots of farce, people basically almost Bedroom falling out. Of yeah, being caught in bed and all that kind of nonsense. But also that there's an element of um, an adventure to it, of, of romance in a more general sense, blended with a kind of realism about the way people live now. There's a nice phrase as well that Margaret Drabble has um, is quoted in the paper. There is a magic about Murdoch's observations that lights up the mundane world. Yes, and she can make a little drama out of anything. The observations it's really are just that. It's really what, and that's one thing that keeps you reading. Yeah. But a, a distinction for me um, when it comes to the novels, which slightly helps me separate them out, is the ones that are predominantly first person narration, often from a male. Uh, protagonist point of view and the ones which are more like a soap opera and she indiscriminately spreads her observations and her clever insights around between an enormous cast and the plots go in 10 million directions that's, yes. a, that's a word that comes up again and again and again throughout the pieces that we have in the paper this week is illumination this mm-hmm. idea of her shedding light i wonder what's what's the kind of the relationship between her fiction and her her philosophy her, her work well are they philosophical novels or <laughs> novelistic yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? She, she denied... She didn't want them, I suppose, to be seen as novels of ideas, did she? She didn't want to be called a philosophical novelist in that sense. She said had she, she known said, about sailing, she would have written, written ex- about yeah. sailing. Exactly, yeah. It's her world, so she writes about her world, but that's not what she... She's not trying to do it as an extension of her philosophical writings. On the other hand, I think we touched on it, you know, Francis, when you mentioned um, the way she writes about love and, you know, what exactly is love in these books... Um, I wonder if it's partly related to an idea that comes up quite early in her philosophical writing about the morality of attention. And yes. I think that's something that that's a way in which her reputation is probably changing. Uh, I mean, uh, Galen Strawson touches on, on this in, in this week's issue. The idea, I think, that um, philosophers are interested in the way she takes the legacy of Platonism yes. and of Aristotle. And she's saying um, that attention is the, is the absolute root of how of virtue of how you're good in the world. What does that mean? Attention, like considering other people. Exactly. So maybe you, you're, you know, we're so obviously self-involved, <laughs> um, and we tend to treat people according to that. So what we need to do is sort of break out beyond our own sort of worldview and see other peoples and appreciate them as subjects like us. You know, people who want agency and freedom and all the rest of it. And so, in a way, she, I think, she's yeah. slightly tilting the balance there. You could put freedom first and say we want to be free and do what we want to do, etc. But actually understanding other people and appreciating their needs is is the more important thing. That's quite un- interesting in the in the political context of all of this and, and, and Murdoch's own kind of political evolution or, mm. well, I don't know whether you see it as an evolution or not, but her kind of her backwards and forwards between socialism and she was, she was an ardent socialist, she was a member of the Communist Party and then she left and I think towards the 70s she, well, she became a Thatcherite. Yeah, there's a great swing to the right, isn't there? But it's interesting that she was a, she joins the Communist Party, which stopped her getting into the States when she need, wanted to go there in the 50s. Um, and then she worked with UNRWA. Um, so I think there's a sense in which she, she's living a kind of applied philosophy of being good. Mm. It's about helping other people. With UNRWA, I think, she was, I think she was in Central Europe for two years, helping people get basic supplies and passports and caring for others and in a way I sometimes think of her as being quite a selfish person gadding around London and Oxford sort yes. of flirtations and things and who knows <laughs> yeah exactly maybe that's the later period <laughs> but, but she comes across very much in her life as someone who did everything she wanted to do I mm. mean she yeah. seems as if she seems as if she led the most magnificently self-gratifying life absolutely I mean there, yeah. there was no one that she didn't sleep with who she wanted to sleep with mm-hmm. and she put her own needs first all the time which is why 
John Bailey got his own back. Yeah, in the way that he did. Absolutely. In this yeah. He gets vilified sometimes, doesn't way. he? And you actually seeing it from his point of view, it's fairly extraordinary yes. to put up. With. Well, tell us about that, Francis. How has she been served by by, by her biographers? Because you point to three people, one of whom is in in the paper this week. Her apprentice, Peter J. Conradi, her friend, well, to another person, A. N. Wilson's in in the paper as well, yes. and her husband, John Bailey. How has she been served by by those people? Well, I I think the afterlife of Iris Murdoch is every bit as interesting as one of the novels. And in fact, she she might have written her own afterlife because they're all kind of... um, They're all dealing with her legacy in... um, in various ways and um, casting each other in various roles. I think that the, the villain of the piece, if you like, is uh, the villain of the story is John Bailey. Her husband. Yes. The minute she died, kind of set himself up as a sex symbol. Which <laughs> <laughs> is un- unlikely. Unlikely, but kind of cast himself as the hero yeah. in the story. And he's, he very much hadn't been the hero at the time. And according to my sources, he behaved actually quite badly mm-hmm. himself. But um, he obviously wanted, you know, he, he, he was a cuckold and he wanted a, a cuckold's revenge. He started when Iris was in the depths of her um, of her dementia he started writing novels I mean he'd already mm. written novels and mm. his novel you have to remember his novels failed so she was fantastically successful he was not successful mm. and meanwhile she was sleeping with all his friends mm. and then you can see why he might be a bit it's <laughs> not it would test the man I was going to say I'm, I'm, I'm becoming then, a bit team Bailey here <laughs> and then Iris gets dementia and he thinks whoa, you know, for the first time ever, you know, she hasn't got exactly what she wants. For the first time ever, you know, he is kind of um, driving this car. And and he then starts writing his own novels and he's controlling the story. And meanwhile, he writes a trilogy of memoirs about her where he's remembering not the kind of the dizzyingly dangerously attractive young woman she was but the, the Teletubby watching old woman peeing her nappy and that became <laughs> and that and, and that became the film and that became the film which is Judy where Judy Dench plays yes her. yes and because William Boyd says in, in the paper that her life interests him now more than her fiction and I wonder if that's I'm struck actually by lots of people throughout this every time they praise Iris Murdoch it's qualified there is in all of this there's this kind of tension Lindsay Duguid the battered bookshelves mm. I no longer turn to um, the, the, William Boyd saying the life's more interesting than fiction I mean in some ways what worse can you say about a novelist than their life interests you more than their books do it's become embarrassing I think to say that you admire Murdoch when I was in the writer the, yes or, or the person the um, the writer when I when I was in New York, I was talking to um, a young American novelist who told me he just read his first. He's thirty five, and he just read his first ever Murdoch novel, which I thought was the best, a severed head. He said it was the worst novel he'd ever read, and howled with laughter when I said, "Well, actually, it electrified me." And, and, why, electrified and why did he not like it? Do you think he thought it was ridiculous? But it, there is a ridiculousness to her novels. I yeah. mean, so there's a seriousness and a ridiculous quality. And the ridiculous quality is the endless coincidence and the kind of crazy plots. But the sentences are so good and the thought is so strong and they do hold, to, mm. they do hold Absolutely. together. Absolutely. But now people giggle a bit. Yeah, I th- and also I think this says something more generally about the way people read that 
these people who are, who offer this kind of qualified praise or maybe say the life's more interesting i can understand that but it's a it, that means they've been through this incredible encounter and they have the luxury of being able to say that and actually that's true of many a novelist i can't think they were all constantly true to one writer yes. all the time this has had a profound effect on them and they have changed people as a result i think that's what some of them are actually saying do we for, do we have to forgive her her volubility it strikes me that one of the knocks against her and i remember reading a lot of martin amos reviews of her and he's another one who kind of clearly admires murdoch he's greatly but actually says everyone's called kind of the same name and i can't yeah. work out who's exactly doing what to whom in, in the yeah. plots he says all the men are called hillary or julian yeah, and all no. the women are called <laughs> julian, julian or, or hillary, hillary. Exactly, yeah. uh, and again, it doesn't, I'm not sure it makes... So I've only read a couple of Murdoch, and I'm not tempted, actually, to read anymore. I, I, I respect them, but I don't love them. I wonder whether... But which ones are those? Well, I've read The Sea, The Sea, yeah. when the book prize. I've read a couple of others, but I can't, I can't vividly remember them yeah. now. But um, did she write too much? Is that another n- knock on it when we look back? Yes. And it, that there, it, it seemed like in the 70s and 80s, was she doing a novel every, almost every 18 months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. she wrote way too and much. And this is partly what you were saying about self-gratification. She got to write what she wants. She yes. wouldn't be edited either. So yes. in a literary yes. sense, she got to do what she wants. Is that true, do you think, that, that she wasn't being edited? That she, uh, Carmen Khalil edited her at one stage and tried to shrink a novel and she said no put everything back in and she did and that was the state that was her status at Chateau as Nora Smallwood ran it and she said Iris gets to say what she wants there's a piece I yes. want to commission but I don't know who would know enough to write it we remember we were talking about this how the problem of a successful author when they're too big to be edited I reckon in the in the canon of literature there must be so many great authors who do two or three really really good books and then for quite a considerable period of their time writing they are effectively uneditable because they've got massive successes behind them and they say no 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 I want I want that bit in and no one is big enough to stop them it must have been the case with J.K. Rowling wasn't it Mm. Would you think with the later Harry Potter books? Cause yeah, just they just got too fast. But that's true. Lots of people, I think, that you see, they sprawl and sprawl. And but, yeah, but it just struck me that could you could you boil it down to two or three great books with Iris Murdoch? Or are yes. we saying that there is a? It's the, we have to take the canon as a whole. I think there are two or three, uh, much more than two or three. I think there are half a dozen really great books. Mm. And Under the Net, her first book is just devastating. The cool. bell. Everyone says you should the, start with the, the bell. The bell is sensational. Yes. Well, let's no, try and do this now because people might again. People might be listening who've not read many. You've not read many, have you, Thea? So why, why don't we try and give, give try and pick six? Okay, a word child is my favourite. Okay. Um, under the net. Yeah. Definitely, I love the sea. The sea. I like the sea. I thought um, it, was, it was very. I, I enjoyed the sort of architectural. It was very well written, but it didn't move me. Was it supposed to be? Moving? I don't think. It's supposed to move you. I think it's supposed to um, um, amuse you. Yeah. It's another crazy one. It's this crazy plot of coincidences, you know, mm. <laughs> where people wander in and out of each other's lives, having forgotten about each other for 60 years, yeah. and everyone's still in love with each other. As You know, you're still in love as an old man with the person you were in love with as a very young man. But is man. that not rather devastating criticism of a novelist, that the bit that a novel is, which is plotting at one level, you know, telling a story from A to B hers were implausible. That seems like quite a thing to overcome. But they're novels of ideas. Yeah. I guess. And so you just do what she moves. She creates this her house of fiction and she puts in her characters who all represent various ideas and she moves them around. And just and because she's interested in love and what happens when people love the implausible happens. You can see how that can be used against her, though. I mean, Sophie Ratcliffe yes. says she's known as pretentious because she's a thinking woman. Do you think that's that's is that a knock on her 
Michael, do you think being pretentious? Well, I think Sophie Ratcliffe may be equating that as a badge of honour, that she was called that and sort of throws it back in people's faces. Yeah. I don't really see that as a valid criticism at all. I mean, she writes about this quite narrow, small world in which virtually everyone is a civil servant or an artist or a friend of a civil servant. And I think there might be a housekeeper called Mitzi Ricardo. And that's <laughs> yeah. as near as she got to a kind of real name. But on the other hand, I think even the plotting is distinctively hers. There's a particular kind of achievement in it. And she does a strange kind of movement from describing characters and mundane things and there's intricate relationships... I just picked up the the nice and the and the good, which I just take as one of the kind of archetypal sixties novels of many characters, many moving parts. And she introduces about six characters in three pages at one point. Yeah. But then you move into a section where she gets deeper into the mind, and then suddenly you'll find yourself in a kind of there's a kind of mini adventure going on, and somebody's trapped in a cave or up a tower, <laughs> and he's really stra- and she just decides to do that and go down. That, and you're just being drawn into this odd thing, and maybe it can be related to uh, philosophical ideas, but it's it's kind of intriguing. I I think also that's linked. To the idea that people used to wait and go I'm the next iris is coming next year is going to be a new one and you get this kind of you so once you've read one as you're saying at the time you're ready and primed to take the next picking out six now is a bit different I would probably leave the 80s and the 90s take two from the 70s yes. two from the 60s two from the 50s the 50s, are, 50s are very strong and shorter aren't they on the whole we have to say something about the iris factor here that she's known as iris oh yeah is okay. any other Jane <laughs> it's Jane, Jane yeah. Aunt Jane yeah. I suppose em, I tell you you get it a bit with Emily it's only Emily. ever female authors and it's, it's Emily, a, oh, Emily Dickinson you get oh we have it, I was thinking Iris and Boris I thought oh, we have yeah. these oh, oh no Francis. this is terrible he didn't she'd like it she'd love Boris yeah. but also I think this we can't rule it out I don't think <laughs> it's a kind I think it's a way isn't it calling her Iris is a way of making her seem less pretentious and less, less intellectually threatening. intimidating mm-hmm. and also it's I think it feeds into what we like about her which is why Boris is called Boris there's a kind of English eccentricity yeah. It's a class thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's in it. And, uh, but I and think as well Murdochian is emerging as a kind of way of describing the type of yes. writing and possibly to philosophers the type of thinking. Yes. Uh, so I, there's an alternative. Hooray. Well, I wonder whether it's because this William Boyd issue that her life... Because if you get a, a film made about you, particularly starring Jude, Judy Dench, and so you know you, you become a character that's not far from a caricature. You know, If you say Iris Murdoch to a lot of people, they'll think of dementia. Yes. They won't think of novel writing. That's a result, John Bailey. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's not good, is it, really? No. Because it, people are being known for a, a later part of their life and also for a fictional fictional treatment of it. And that, maybe that isn't not fictional, but a, but a, yeah. but a, but a filmic. I mean, I don't know how fictional the film is, but it will have elements that aren't true. Yeah. Oh, it's imagine. completely ridiculous. I it's mean, the ridiculous. idea that um, John Bailey was like Jim Broadbent, this kind of giant oh, yeah. towering over Iris, when oh. it's the other way around. That's point number one. Is that about the, we, I, we, uh, I, I saw a film, Vita and Virginia, mm. which talks uh. about the new, the new Virginia Woolf film. And in it, Virginia Woolf is this willowy six-footer uh, which I don't believe she was, and it's all. It, the, and Vita's tiny. Vita, yeah, and Vita's this tiny thing. It was, it was the other way around, and and some people that really bothers because if you're going to take the trouble to do this, I mean, I, I put it, I interviewed the director, and I said, is it not a problem that these two people are so good looking? It's Gemma Arterton, Elizabeth Debicki playing Vita and Virginia. I was like, these are so good looking, <laughs> Gemma Arterton, and and I said, and I'm not being, it's not a sexist point. I say, imagine if there was a film called Larkin and Brad Pitt. <laughs> appears walking down the streets of Hull, unmade up, so it's Brad Pitt as created by nature. Do you think people would say, you know what, I like Larkin, 
that he did not look like look like Brad Pitt. I think it matters, don't you think, how these people get I get, think get it's revealed? It's really in important. It's really important because you're kind of um, your your ego depends very much on your appearance because that's how people respond to you and so you can't just kind of so, so your writing is really a response to what you look like mm-hmm. or how much space you take up mm-hmm. in a room and to suddenly have a, a, you know the best looking person in the world representing you yeah. you wouldn't have been a writer if you looked like that <laughs> you combine those points and you think of Shakespeare in love where it's, he's called Will <laughs> he's not a great writer everyone don't worry his name's Will it's perfectly safe by the way he's dashing he is dashing <laughs> did we mention that he's dashing he is dashing in that film there's a whole new podcast to be had on that uh, we, better stop, uh, we better stop talking about our iris murder but go on one book everyone should go and read now give me one a word child word child michael oh this is terrible one the italian girl the italian girl there we go two recommendations uh, francis wilson and michael keynes thank you very much indeed this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive in june olive in june gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I defy you to name any other podcast that would segue from the life and work of Iris Murdoch to a joyous appreciation of the American women's football team, who won their second consecutive and fourth overall World Cup win this last weekend. In fact, it's not perhaps that wild a leap, because when Jonathan Gibbs celebrates Murdoch's ability to balance the serious and the silly... When Becca Rothfeld marvels at the humanity underlying her work and when Anne Rowe points to how the novels illuminate for us the right thing to do, they might also have been talking about the US women's national team. In this week's TLS, Devaney Loser, Jane Austen scholar, and I mean this is the TLS, uh, admires the Americans for their unparalleled ethos and skill within the game and without. They provide, she says, a brief opportunity to revel in America's better strengths. 
So might they be the ones holding the key to making America great again? Devani Losa joins us in the studio now. Hello, Devani. So great to be here, Thea. It's great to have great you. To be here. Um, I got the sense, Devani, that you, you quite enjoyed this commission. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this was a dream. For this to be work and fun at the same I time. Know, when know. it comes together like that's a beautiful thing, right? How big a deal is this in America, then, the World Cup? Because I was about to say to you when you came in, it got big here. So 12 million people watched it. It got big quite suddenly here, though. It seems yeah. to have come out of nowhere. Well, because we, we're just so desperate for any form of success. So <laughs> it, when it looked like the women's football team was going to do well, I was like, yes, we all love women's football. But that's not quite the relationship America has with women's football. I think when soccer. you say, say... Sorry, I'm going to say soccer. Say soccer. Don't go with it. If I, if I occasionally slip into football, you'll like me more. I know <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. But soccer is where I'm at. No, I think in the States, we associate soccer primarily with the women's team, which is wild, right? Uh, you know, or children who play, boys yeah. and girls who play. But no, this is a huge, huge deal, this team. And it's gotten people incredibly riled up. Of course, the games are on live at very odd times for us. So that sort of adds to the, uh, the excitement, I guess. You're watching sports at a time you might not usually what time, what, used to. What time are they on? Well, it depends what uh, time zone you're in, but it could be, you know, morning to, to noon. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this final, in fact, when I was originally um, asking you, I forgot that you were actually in London at the time. And I was thinking, oh, you'll be in America. So the time difference mean you'll, means you'll be able to write this piece in the morning and blah, blah, blah. But no, you were in London, uh, which is why we're lucky, we're lucky enough to have you. Um, but you ended up in the Maple Leaf Pub in Covent Garden. <laughs> How was yes. that? What was the what was the mood like? So I wrote to the U.S. consulate and asked them where I should go, and they, <laughs> they, they totally ignored my message. <laughs> uh, so that's not good. They must have had more important things to do. I can't think what they are. But I also then just started crowdsourcing, and I have a friend who writes in the sports section for the New York Times, and he asked around his office. And the Maple Leaf came up there, and then it came up again on Facebook. And I thought, there's a reason why this is coming up. Why a Canadian uh, pub is a f- I, I think there used to be a place called the Jet Lag that oh, catered yeah, to Americans. near the embassy somewhere. Yes, and that's apparently closed. So this was the one people kept saying, listen, this is where the U.S. fans are uh, flocking. And I'm from Minnesota, right there near the Canadian border. I feel like an honorary Canadian much of the time. So it felt like a good fit. And it was. It was a terrific place what to What was watch it like? The game. Set the scene for us. What was it like? Really? Oh, it was, it was absolutely packed. And I went very early, of course, right? Yeah. You know, this, I was on assignment. Uh, <laughs> so I had my table all picked out. Uh, but they didn't have table service. So I had to leave my things, go to the bar, get my pint. And by the time I came back, there was another couple sort of saying, is this table taken? Is this table taken? And ended up sharing it uh, with them. So that's, oh, that's nice. uh, the Miranda and Nathan and the piece. But it was, we were just, it was like being in the stands. It was not unlike being in the stands. We weren't quite that packed, but it was really, really um, electric in there. A feeling that really comes across in your piece, and um, it, it's kind of a, a joyousness, or a sense of positivity, but also a really deadly seriousness to it all, which seems to fit with the force that animates the team as a whole. When both of those things happen at once, isn't that just fabulous? Yeah. Uh, no, it certainly felt like that in the bar. Why is it serious? Pub, sorry. Why is it serious? I, I think it's serious because of the issues that are circulating behind Tell us what the issues the are, because I think that's interesting. Well, equal pay, obviously, as we yeah. talk about in the story. Uh, you know, gender and sexuality, both very key, very important. Uh, five members of the team and the coach are out, uh, lesbians. So this, this is an important thing. Uh, I think the news coverage looking at the players in France and the fact that they feel they don't have the same ability to... Um, express their sexual identities, um, their, their sexual preferences. This is not um, 
this is not something we've had very long in the United States either. So I think it, it feels momentous. It feels different, both in terms of the identity, in terms of the social justice issues, in terms of the, the pay issues, all of these things. Um, and on the pay issues and the social justice issues, we should say that the team is currently bringing a lawsuit against yes. you, the U.S. Soccer Federation. Yes. What, what's the kind of, what are the ins and outs of that? So at this moment, they three months ago, they filed a discrimination lawsuit, a sexual discrimination lawsuit, and right now they have agreed tentatively to mediation. So the next thing to see is where the conversation goes. It's not headed for a court of law at this point. It's, it's headed for a, another possible outcome, and we'll see where it goes. But they are arguing that not only is the pay differential uh, obscenely uh, skewed, <laughs> I think obscene is the right word, I think it's 38%. The women are, the estimate is 38% of, of uh, what men are getting And they make more money, because interesting, in this country, the women's game is much smaller. Uh, the male uh, game has been much, has been around for, for much longer, and therefore it makes a lot of money. So when arguing about legal pay, some people would say, well, hang on a second, the revenue that's, dri- that's, that's driven by the men is very much considerably higher than the women. That is not true in America, is it? I'm actually, Ameri- a women's soccer makes more money than men's soccer. Yes, and this has apparently been true for a long time, although I think the numbers weren't necessarily as visible as they are now. There were a billion people watching this game worldwide. That's one in eight people on the planet. And Nike, I think I saw this in the news today, Nike's reported that it sold more of these jerseys than, you know, record-setting number of jerseys in terms of its sales. So yes, it's commercially very successful. So why, why does this inequality persist? Well, that's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, I would say unfairness. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just it's just the societal <laughs> environment. I mean, does anyone throw any fig leaf argument? I mean, I can't think what an argument because if you haven't even got an economic argument that's itself based on unfairness, what do you have even as a fig leaf? I, I'm not the right person to speak to that because yeah. it's just baffling to me. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't see how they could possibly have a leg to stand on in here. And how how did the women in America become so good at playing soccer? What is it about over there that has facilitated this skill. Yeah, so I talked in the piece about Title IX, this yeah, piece I of legislation. Yeah, I think about this. Explain yeah, this. Yeah, so 1972, the Education Acts, it was about offering uh, equitable treatment in educational settings that received federal funding. And many people now in the States think it's a sports rule because the way that it has been more visible or maybe had more of a visible impact in many children's lives is in terms of sports. So schools that were receiving federal funding needed to start offering opportunities for girls. And because American football rosters were so large, uh, you know, these teams for boys are huge. I mean, 50, 60 people on a team is not unusual for an American football team. There needed to be some way to get the girls' numbers up. And it was my colleague, Victoria Jackson, as I mentioned in the piece at ASU at Arizona State University, who taught this to me. She said soccer was chosen because they could build up these large rosters to look closer, to look like parity with the the boys' football team. And it's a sport that football in this country, again, and a lot of places around the world, is a working-class sport. It's played by kids in its origins, kicking around a, a ball on a street. And that's true of Brazil, it's true of uh, Italy, I suspect, in, in, in England. Yeah. That's not really true of women's football in America. It's a m- very middle-class sport. The notion of a soccer mom has kind of crossed over the Atlantic in, in our minds. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a sport that is, is it dominated by the, the privileged, is that fair to say? Yes, at least historically. Uh, and there aren't good statistics kept on this. You'd have to ask the social scientists uh, for the most current ones. I'm the, I don't have those 
quite as well at hand. But what I can say is that traditionally it was a suburban sport, so mostly white. And you can imagine the the inner city schools didn't necessarily have resources that they needed to make equal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're dealing with no resources, you don't have to worry about numbers and equality. Yeah. So it was the suburban schools where there were more resources going to sport where these girls' soccer teams really grew up in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And the basic fact of it is it's an exceedingly expensive thing to get into on an individual level for 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 the players' parents. Yes, and I talked about this a little bit in the piece That's as crazy, well. That's crazy, isn't it? Because a ball, a ball exactly. is, what, $10? You're supposed to be able to do it anywhere, yeah. but no, you need... Well, you, you explain it. Yeah, so it's primarily offered as a fall season sport. So if you want to play year-round, and anyone who's any good, of course, wants to play year-round, you need to join a club team. And a club team is going to have dues. It's going to require travel. Uh, these can go into the thousands of dollars. And America so, being a big place, travel is not just getting on a bus for five minutes right it can be proper travel and my sons aren't playing soccer but i i know parents whose kids still are who you know to, to drive on the weekend three hours uh, to a match is not unusual um, i want to ask you a bit more broadly about are we living in a golden era in america of politicized sports because I, I think of basketball where the stars are so powerful now it feels they can really campaign for social justice we see it a bit in american football although it gets crushed a little i would say colin kaepernick but it just feels that there is a mouthpiece and in this country there's a player called raheem sterling who's a, a black footballer who is tackling institutionalized racism in the media and in, in football itself and his voice is being heard and he's using his popularity to campaign for social good and in many ways that's what Megan Rapinoe is doing and this team is doing. Do you think that's there's the stirrings of something here, the politicization of sport? I absolutely hope so. Uh, I think my colleagues at ASU at the Global Sport Institute would say, hold on a minute, <laughs> there's actually quite a long history of this and it hasn't changed things fast enough. But but I hope that every new moment and the way that now sports are reaching, I mean, the, that billion person mark uh, is gives me hope, gives me hope. Well, you've got to, I mean, I suppose, I wonder if we might end this podcast on a, uncharacteristically cheering. We haven't mentioned Trump yet. (laughs) We haven't. Should we try and keep it that way? I think we all know where he stands in in this whole thing. Um, But since since going to press with your your piece, uh, we've had a high-profile endorsement. You were telling me this morning by email. Tell us about that. Yes. So Miranda, I mentioned in the piece, asked me... Your drinking buddy. My drinking buddy, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I limited myself to one pint. I knew I had to drink. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, This is a one-pint article, is it? (laughs) It's a one-pint article. That's good to know. Uh, So Miranda... Miranda said to me, oh, I know someone from Arizona. I know, uh, her, she said, I know your senator, uh, Kristen Cinema." And I said, well, that's amazing. I just got an email from her, a mass email, because I'm her constituent and I voted for her. And it, it was an important moment because I think with Miranda and Nathan, we were trying to talk around politics. This is kind of a thing happening now, I'm sure, here too, where you're not entirely sure. Is that, that hard in America because it's become so polarized that you, it's in, in a dinner party, yes, maybe we shouldn't mention it? I've experienced it as hard. Uh, you like, know, Bre- like, like Brexit in this country. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, we'd used words that I keywords that I had a feeling we were probably going to see eye to eye politically, you know, diversity, and we'd been to the Pride uh, Festival, yeah. and, you know, things like climate could, change. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. 
But Miranda <laughs> told me that she actually does Iron Man competitions with oh. Senator Cinema, who is our first female senator from Arizona, the first openly bisexual senator uh, in the Senate, and the first to declare no religion. So she's a really interesting woman. Oh my God. I was happy, excited to vote for her. She won, not by a large margin, but no. the fact that she won it all in Arizona, which has traditionally been a more Republican-leaning state, at least in recent years, uh, was very, very exciting. So on Facebook, Miranda posted this article, and I saw uh, Kirsten Cinema wrote in and said, this makes me very happy. Right. So I love that our great senator, uh, she said, Arizona represents. And, so, <laughs> and social media finally doing some good. Exactly. You know, normally it's just this sewer of awfulness, and then it's... Uh, um, that's great. Uh, Let's what, ride this wave of euphoria to the end. Yeah. Before we go, what's a roller derby? Well, derby. It, der, I say derby. derby Again, this is like derby. soccer football. Yeah, okay. Derby, derby. Just expl- yeah. No, the London roller girls here would say derby. They would say okay. derby. And it, it's like ice hockey, but on roller skates. Not really. Oh, I know. I want to. That's, that's, that's what I was going for. Go on. It's five it? on five. Yeah. And four of the skaters are blockers. One is the jammer. The jammer scores points. Yeah. The blockers are playing offense and defense at the same time. How do you block someone? Uh, with, with your full the, body. <laughs> basically, there are legal blocking zones from your, you know, your shoulder to your hip. You can't elbow. I mean, there are things that are penalties. Uh, and then anything from your hip to your knees, you, you know, you can't use your head. There are, like, there are rules. <laughs> it's not like what you might remember from television. Yeah, is that uh, a tough sport, though? Oh, it's a fabulous, fun sport. Everyone should go out and watch the London Roller Girls here. If the they're l- here and wherever they are, they're thousands of teams now worldwide. Well, they feature in your piece just at the very end where you say uh, a skater calling herself Raw Heidi told me she discovered sport in her mid-twenties and has since represented England twice in the Roller Derby World Cup. She's called Raw Heidi. Raw Heidi. And she says she says that growing up she was told, oh, you're a girl, you don't play sports. Yeah. So. Um, and your Roller Derby name is? Stone Cold Jane Austen. What a name that is. When I first learned that, when I just took over, because we had a piece, a really lovely piece for you about Jane Austen and I learned that you were called Stone Cold Jane Austen, and my heart You can absolutely, see now how happy you are. It just makes me happy. What a, what a name. <laughs> Combining wrestling, Jane Massive Austen, smiles. and roller derby. What more can you ask for? I have um, a pretty good life. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it there. That's positive. Well done. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Stone Cold Jane Austen, Michael, the Dr. Keynes, and Francis Wilson. Make sure you get your hands on the TLS this week, especially if you have read a lot of Iris Murdoch, or actually none at all. There's lots of other good stuff too. Next week... We have a musical theme to the paper. So thankfully, indie pop star Lucy Dallas will be here instead of me. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.